Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, from Montreal, Canada, the Montreal Just for Laughs Festival on location. I'm very excited. Last year I came here, it was awesome. Had some great interviews with some great people. And I thought this year I would, as they say, pop my cherry here in Montreal, it's horrible, with my guest today, Harlan Williams, who I'm very excited about, who actually is from the fabulous country of Canada and has made a tremendous living and name for himself up here and in the United States. He does so many different things, and we're going to talk about that. He's such an inspirational guy. First, I want to thank you guys all for all the letters and the emails, all of the correspondence, you guys. It's just unbelievable how fantastic you've been and how supportive you've made the show what it is today. If you ever feel the need to buy anything on Amazon, please go to my website, barrycats.com slash podcast. Click on the Amazon banner. It's free for you. It doesn't cost anything, and it donates money to the Barry Cats Jewish boy college fund which is very very important anyway harlan williams is looking like what the fuck's going on here why is barry cats plugging something i'm sorry i just had to do that because it doesn't cost you anything and amazon takes care of uh, my family so that's good that's the personal note on a professional note and a personal note as you know i always look at my guest and something happens to me i feel something and something comes to me that i want to talk about as i look at harlan williams the biggest thing i want to talk about to all of you today if there's a lesson in any part of business business that you're in or that you do. Harlan Williams is the epitome of that lesson. And that lesson is as follows. Extraordinarily hard work combined with extraordinarily wonderful 
kindness and generosity and niceness to all human beings he comes in contact with. If I can just say this, I've known Harlan probably a better parts of my whole career, and I have never, ever one time seen him uh, lose his temper, seen him be rude to anybody. I've seen him in distress. I've seen him in situations where he wasn't happy. But for some reason, the great actor that he is, he keeps it all together, and he's always professional and always kind and always generous to everybody. And that's probably the reason why he never, ever stops, how you say it, working. People never stop hiring Harlan William. They want him there. When you're in any situation, I don't care what profession you're in, let's pretend you're the boss. Let's pretend you're the person writing the checks, okay? And you're writing out a check of your personal bank account or your professional bank account to bring someone of services in. Do you want the person coming doing the services who you feel is a complete asshole and somebody who makes you feel like an insignificant piece of shit? Or do you want the person coming to do the job who makes you feel like a million bucks, who treats you like gold, and who treats everybody around you like they're a relative or a family member? You always want to hire that guy. And so combine that with the fact that Harlan Williams is one of a kind, is an extraordinary stand-up comedian, is an extraordinary animator and book writer, is an extraordinary writer of content, is a phenomenal actor. And to top it all off, a guy, when you go to a live show of his, you never, ever see the same show twice. You might see the same joke here or another joke there, whatever, but it never seems to follow any format. And I'm telling you something, if he does an hour special, I can guarantee you from the moment before he gets on stage, even though he's planned it in and out and a thousand times, the way Harlan Williams works and the way his mind works, he prepares over and over and over again. But what he prepares for is actually the known going into the unknown. He prepares for the challenge of switching things up, almost like when you go into a store and you get a Powerball lottery ticket. You're hoping to win, but the numbers are all mixed together and you're hoping for the right combination. The only difference with Harlan Williams, every single show, every single time, it's the right combination. And so I don't want to belabor this too much, but I want to share something else about Harlan Williams, about what hard work and being in the right place at the right time and being a good guy does for you. And a lot of people don't believe in this, and I understand some of you might turn this off after I say this, but I'm a firm believer in karma. And Harlan Williams is the kind of guy, again, when you treat people right along the way and on the way up, things happen to you. Good things happen to you. I'm not saying that Harlan hasn't had bone-crushing things happen to him personally and professionally. He has. But the fact is, is that the positives far outweigh the negatives. And so if you ever are fortunate enough to have Harlan Williams invite you out to where he lives, you'll see how karma has affected his career because he lives in a spectacular home with a spectacular separate office and guest house overlooking the entire city of Los Angeles on a mountain. It's spectacular. You don't get that 
by being an asshole to everybody all the time. You don't get that by being a bad guy. You don't get that by being somebody who might be ordinary. You get that by being extraordinary and treating people right. And so that's the lesson for today. If you want to get to where you want to go, look at Harlan Williams, see how he gets it done. And I can guarantee you, if you're nice to everybody and you work hard and you do extraordinary things, you're going to have everything you want in life. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to let you know about this one persistent guy, Michael Purcell, who kept calling me and traveled to L.A. to meet me. He told me that he created a company 10 years ago called Global Cash Card that figured out a way to make the payroll of any size company a paperless situation, allowing every employee's weekly salary to be instantly loaded anytime, anywhere, stress-free onto their own personal Visa payroll card for free. He went on to tell me that it costs a company around $3 for every paycheck cut, and that means if you're an organization that writes a 1,000 paper checks every week, with his company, you'd save $12,000 a month by using Global Cash Card. And if you do the math, that's $135,000 a year. So go to GlobalCashCard.com right now to schedule live demo. Speak to Michael Purcell. Check out their... Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I will give my main man, Harlan Williams, the proper introduction hopefully he won't fall asleep during this introduction and then i will introduce him and we will go very very excited about this harlan williams is an incredible stand-up comedian he's done hour specials he's done many many television shows including a late show with david letterman where he did something very very unusual and this is not in his wikipedia page he went on the show putting a substance on his shoes. That's right. He's the only stand-up comedian in history that did the Letterman show with peanut butter on his shoes. We'll talk about that, too. He's done numerous television shows. He's done amazing movies for many, many studios, including the first one that I was ever involved with called Half-Baked, where I laughed my ass off through in the entire movie. A comedian who works theaters and comedy clubs all over the country. I know you're going to like him a lot. Please welcome my guest today, the man the myth the legend harland williams <laughs> how are you wild thing i'm very good hey you're very good i'm very good this yeah. is so exciting thanks for doing this man i'm charged up i just had a uh, wonderful dish of uh, nelly frittato's beef stroganoff so i'm charged nelly frittato's beef stroganoff yeah a lot of these celebrities have you know paul newman had newman's own yes. popcorn a lot a lot of these celebrities are uh doing their own food products last night uh these days and last night i had a uh for the first time have you tried george michael's tea bags <laughs> 
They're no, just, I have not just tried those. Really great before bed. Put you right out. Just I'm a sure wonderful brew. Yeah, <laughs> cinnamon tea bags, uh, apple cinnamon. God bless George Michael. If you could have your own product, like Paul Newman, your first product, sure. what would it be? Sure, it'd probably be uh, Harlan Williams corn dog, <laughs> and it would be extra long. Or it would be Harlan Williams uh, seven layer lasagna. And it would be the exact uh, dimensions of the space tiles they put on the uh, space shuttle. And I would encourage people to uh, plaster their car with my lasagna slices like space tiles and then try to go as fast as they could and see if they could break the sound barrier (laughs) in their Prius, their Kia, what have you. Before the seventh layer peels off. Right. And they'd be protected by Harlan Williams' seven-layer space tile lasagna. (laughs) Too soon? (laughs) <laughs> I can't uh, I can't tell you what a pleasure it is to see you always have something I just want to prove to you guys something about Harlan Williams and I'm putting him on the spot I don't care I'm gonna just throw something out anything at all and I can guarantee you he's gonna hate me but he will make it funny in some particular way just off the top of his cuff like he does every single time ready watch this now he's going to fuck with me now and not do anything. Pillow. Okay, well, <clears throat> I first of all, I agree with you, but that topic, unfortunately, um, my father <laughs> was, uh, was in the hospital with uh, colon cancer oh, and uh, got one of those weird nurses that one day snuck into his room and suffocated him to death with a pillow, so... You might have picked the wrong topic right out of the gate. I'm sorry, Harlan. Yeah. He uh, he was set to pass in about a week from the colon cancer. And this one of those wacky nurses that you see on these CNN crime came in and suffocated the life out of his little shriveled up body. So if you, if you can maybe come up with another topic later on, that really wasn't the funniest for me. I'm sorry about reference there. I really am. Well, why don't you say sorry to my dad? Because he's, uh, you know, lifeless. He's in colon cancer pillow suffocation heaven. And, uh, you know, it doesn't do anything for... Well, if you're going to laugh, maybe this isn't the show for me. No, no, I'm sorry, Dad. Don't know your dad's name. Don't look at me. My dad's up there, right by that sprinkler. (laughs) Sorry, Dad. Right near the smoke detector. If you're sad about your dad right now. That was a good one, Dr. Seuss, if you're sad about your dad. Yeah, if you're sad about your dad right now, I would say if the roles were reversed and you were looking down from pillow suffocation heaven, you were to see us sitting here, your dad and me, you would say, don't be sad, dad. I'm happy up here. Everything's okay. I wanted to be suffocated. Things are okay for me. And please laugh it up. I want you to have fun down there on Earth. And when you come back later, tell Barry to take the room with the cameras and have a good time on me because I'm looking down. Harlan Williams from Pillow Suffocation Heaven down to you, Dad. Enjoy the room. I won't tell Mom. Well, first of all, you said if the roles were were reversed. And, uh, you know, one thing my dad taught me in life, and I look, Dad, if you're listening, if you don't have a pillow over your head, uh, my dad taught me that um, you never, ever reverse the roles. If you're at Denny's, if you're at a, a nice uh, dinner, at a banquet, 
if someone offers you a Kaiser and then before you even get a chance to bite into it, offers you like a, uh, you know, a cheese bun, you, you don't do it. He said, son, you never reverse the rolls. Whatever roll they give you, you butter it and you eat the goddamn thing. And pardon me for swearing. So reversing the rolls uh, probably nullifies everything you said there. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a good thought. I'm going to go for, uh, I'm going to continue with this thought, if you don't mind. Yeah, please, please. Uh, as we look at the sprinkler. But let's talk about your mom for a little bit. How is she handling the pillow suffocation Well, if uh, tragedy? my mom was still with us. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so sorry. Well, no, if you're going to bring it up, and I understand this is an interview, um, does the word leukemia ring a bell? I've never <laughs> had leukemia. Well, I know someone who did. Um, wow. Um, I could just take a breath. You don't have any Musinex around, do you? I don't know what that is. I, well, I went to take a breath and I realized I'm phlegmy. It's, it's a thing that helps reduce phlegm. I just, self-mutilated, I just self-mutilated myself just now because of the story. I just want you to know that. Look, we can switch gears. If you want to get off my parents, I, I'm okay. But if you want to hear about how leukemia slowly deteriorates the body and a son watches his mother shrivel up in a bed like an orange that's been left out in the desert with a turtle sucking the juice out of it. Um, we can go there. I'm actually crying right now, so... It's good to see you crying with a giant Cheshire cat grin on your face. <laughs> I... You must be severely sad. You know how people, they laugh through their pain? Oh, is that okay? Can you see the the tear? <laughs> My parents are dead. <laughs> one was murdered and one died slowly. <laughs> well, I, I don't laugh like that. I just no. Kinda... I'm getting my pain out. It's a good call. Is it working? Yeah. <laughs> so the people that go to your shows and watch you, a lot of them have suffered the deaths of their parents. And... Probably parents come and parents go. They're like tides. They go, they come in and they go out and they leave us behind. We're, we're the shells on the beach. We're the, we're the dead crab carcasses. We're the scallops. They wash out. We remain. Maybe we spread our seed. We have sex on the beach, create new baby mollusks or barnacles. One day we wash out and they stay. Maybe a little baby syringe or maybe a little baby uh, pop top. A little, maybe little baby uh, garbage bag. Whatever your kids are, they remain on the beach. One day they fornicate, and uh, then they leave some trash on the beach, and and they go out. That's it's a, the cycle of life, guy. The cycle of the pop top life. Yeah, it's it's all about recycling. That's why beaches are so damn dirty. My hepatitis is. The number one killer of sunbathers. <laughs> Do you? Uh, where did you learn how to drink soda? You know, I learned, and this is a good story. I learned in boarding school, and my whole life, when I was uh, when I was uh, twelve years old, I went to boarding school, and I realized when I drank my pop like this, it was just a flat experience. 
But when you pressurize it with a with a high volume suck, it causes the the pop to blast across this metal rim. And you know when you shake up a pop and it foams up? Yes. So if you do a high-powered power suck, it causes it to foam out as it comes across this rim. And instead of just a flat thing of pop going down your mouth, it foams up in your mouth like you shook it. And then you have this wonderful foamy, so now I go... And have a mouthful of foam, and it's fun, like I'm at a carnival with a little Chinese boy. Why does he have to be Chinese? Chinese boys love carnivals. Duh. <laughs> okay. Wow. I'm learning a lot today, Harlan. Yeah, yeah. But I, that's that. Try encourage people to try it. I will do that. Yeah, just I, suck it. Power suck your uh, pop. Do you try to meet women who have the same technique? I'd never done it, but I don't censor myself in front of women. It's it's like if you're going to be with a life partner, they have to know everything you have to offer, right? And uh, if there's a woman out there that wants a, a gentleman who can power suck, then, you know, I'm that guy. I'm, the, I'm They found me. Fantastic. Oh, I've been working in the same building for 25 years. Oh, I've been going to ballet classes. Oh, I've been riding my horse. Oh, I play bocce ball at the bocce ball club on the weekend. I've never bumped into a power sucker. And then one day they watch this little uh, song and dance we're doing. They see this. I found the man of my dreams. There's a power sucker. Yes, you have. You should have named me Ramora. Do you know what a Ramora is? I'm going to find out. You don't know, seriously. I'm sorry. Functionally special needs right now. All right. You've whipped me into this depressing coma. I'm so upset. I've cried. I'm mutilated myself. I'm looking at a sprinkler as a vision of your dad. Your mom passed away. And now yeah. we're talking about your skills as a power sucker. So this interview is going into new territory for me. Well, did you, you want to know what a remora is? Yes, I do. Uh, Before you start, does anybody here know what a remora is? No. Did you want to get a shot of the sprinkler, by the way? Because I don't know if people would believe there's... Yes, we're going to get the cutaway of the sprinkler. A room with a sprinkler in it. It's it's almost like this room has a clitoris, and if you activate it, it gets real wet in here. You know, okay, what I'm I off track. That's okay. I love that. We'll get back to the uh, anatomy uh, portion of the show in a second. I love, you know, when you want to have some fun, you just come here late at night with a lighter. A lighter, yeah. You put the lighter near the clitoris, and this room gets doused. That's right. Heat. Heat. Heat and douche. And remora. Remora. Now, let me give you a clue. I think you'll figure Does this out. Does it have out. to do with Nelly Furtado? No, but on that note, oh, my God. Uh, two nights ago, I was out, and I had some of Sigourney Weaver's <laughs> chicken piccata <laughs> to die for. To die for. Oh, my God. Sigourney Weaver's Chicken Piccata. Sigourney, always funny, this name Sigourney. Well, I wouldn't laugh until I've tried it. But um, a remora, now a picture a shark swimming under the water in the ocean. What's something that you associate with a shark swimming underwater? Me peeing and shitting in my pants. <laughs> okay, okay. I sense an attack. But visualize a shark swimming underwater. What do you see? Do you just see the shark? I see the shadow of the shark and the fin. 
you see anything else? No, I don't know what else I would see. How about a remora? Okay. You ever see the little fish that suck on the side of a shark? Yes. Those are called remoras. Power suckers. Nature's power suckers. They actually have a suction cup on the back of their head. Spanish fishermen, when they would catch remoras, used to put them back on the line, and when they saw a sea turtle go by, they'd throw the remora back out. The remoras instinctively go to the nearest moving object. They'd suck to the back of the turtle shell, and the Spanish fishermen would pull in sea turtles. Interesting. I Nature never knew created a creature with a suction cup on its head. Nature's power sucker. Here's to you, Remora. <laughs> and by the way, I'm going to name my first daughter Remora. Do you have any children that you know of? Not that I know of. God. Do women like you? No. Men don't like me much either. But this interview might change the whole thing about the women. And I'm hoping it doesn't change it for men. Now I'm going to get serious here, and I hope you don't get mad at me. No, I never get mad. Now, and I want you to be serious, and I want you to make jokes about this. When I saw this going on in your life, it had a really brutal effect on me. Most everyone out there who's listening strives to have reciprocal love. They strive to have some kind of a relationship that works based on their idiosyncrasies that they know about themselves and the variable of the unknown of the person that they're with that they hope will match perfectly with them and then they can get along with for the rest of their lives. And one of the things I saw you go through that was brutal is that you had met a woman and you got married and within a very short time it ended and it was one of the only times in my life i have ever seen you just almost eviscerated like larry moss would say about great actors like a hole blown through you yeah and you're always trying with your craft to fill the hole and then when you do a great job it fills the hole and then when your job is over the hole is open again and sure. i saw you get literally personally crushed like a bug all your dreams your hopes i'm talking about in terms of a personal relationship and this is serious and you were working through it i remember you used to come to the laugh factory every night and you were jacked up and you were like in the best shape of your life and you looked fantastic and before that had happened you were so happy and i was seeing you in such a great way and in a matter of seconds it seemed like the world pulled the rug out from underneath you and behind the scenes in the Laugh Factory in the lobby, you were just a fraction of the person you were. I'd say, what are you doing here? Why don't you just do something, go somewhere, take a break? No, I got to work. And you would go up every night and you would crush the crowd. And I would think to myself, how is he possibly <laughs> doing this? So I wanted you to share, sure. if you don't mind, seriously. Sure. What it's like to really, because we don't, when we talk on the podcast, a lot of times people don't realize that your personal life is completely intertwined with your professional life and you're trying to balance both so if you don't mind telling the audience how you dealt with that situation where you had that thing where you thought you had something special and then every instinct you had in your gut your mind because you trust your instincts everybody does and you go for something and then somebody just takes you out completely and then you're just left bare there and you have to go on and you have to make money and you have to go on with your life so talk to the audience about sort of what happened to you and how you overcame that to still be a great at what you were doing 
Well, you know, divorce is uh, it's it's a devastating process because you know when you get married, it's a, it's a promise. It's a big, beautiful promise of all these things. You know, family and future and and building. And and when that house of cards tumbles down, it's 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 you know it's it's one of those benchmark moments in life that everyone envisions, right? You envision when you're a kid getting your first car, you're losing your virginity, getting your first job, getting married, and uh, and so when that house of cards tumbles, it's it's pretty devastating because you 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 were, had such great expectations for it. So during that time, it was uh, it was it was tough, you know, as it is for most people. And I don't recommend it for anybody. If you can work through your 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 bad times, do it. And so what I did is I just kind of turned to my work. You know, my, that was one of the real saving grace about stand up comedy is is you know, when you're feeling bad, we have this outlet where we can almost, it's like a machine, you know, where you, when you put meat into a sausage maker, you shove in this raw meat and then this finely, you know, tuned sausage comes out the other end. It's a different product. So I could go into a comedy club, have all this anxiety and, and whatever I was feeling about my personal situation, go on stage, create joy that came out of here and out of here and spit it out the other way. And so it helped, like, take the edge off of those those bad times. And so it's just, a, you know, it was, it was a great way to channel that, that disruptive energy. It was a great way to release emotion. It was a great way to almost use the public to help you get through things because you're using their laughter to help nurture your spirits. And so, so yeah, it's a, it's it's an awful time, but but you know, comedy at its root is about laughter and joy, and and when you can step into that environment and and transform negativity into something beautiful that helps you, and and in turn, you're making people laugh. It's 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 a beautiful thing. So that's kind of was my coping mechanism, if I can throw those two words around. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. As you know, I'm like a savant when it comes to comedy, and I study comedians, and I, Uh-oh. as you know, spend a lot of time in the clubs. You betcha. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say that horrible thing that happened to you 
was one of the greatest things that ever happened to you because I think your comedy and everything about your career just went to the next level in the next few years. It was almost like on steroids because you put so much energy towards that and you were like, hey, listen, look, I'm not going to trust any relation i'm just gonna focus my time in, in the people that actually give me love and every time i go on stage they're always there and they're always there for me comedy is almost like man's best friend when you come home the dog is always jumping i heard somebody say the other day that they wished that everything in life was like your dog at home to where you walk in the door and the dog jumps on you and loves you and is happy to see you and everything and then anything can happen during the day they can you can punish the dog whatever the dog could be at a corner the dog could get used to you and just lying next to you and then the next day you come in they're jumping all over you again and that's what comedy was for you then and you had that love every single night and you channeled everything into your craft and i think that really helped you excel and go to the next level do you agree with that well you know it, it, it i don't know i i get what you're saying i don't know if it it got me through all that. It, it, it. No, you're still not through it. Yeah, you, you never get through it. But I, I would say, I would say to a degree. But uh, you know, I, I think, I think, I would never go to the comedy crowd to look for an intimate, deep love, which is what you lose when you get divorced. There's a love from between you and the comedy crowd, but uh, on a certain level, it's superficial because you don't really know them. They're they're a a faceless crowd, whereas an intimate love with someone that you know and, and get really close to, that's that's a different level of love. So it can kind of nurture the wound, but it doesn't heal it. And, and I always feel when I'm around you and it's like unspoken and we don't talk about it. Did you want to marry me? <laughs> is that what this is? Oh, my God. You're a great catch. Do you have a ring? I don't, and my knee is sore. Sorry. I thought you were okay. I'm not even a good power sucker, but what I well, wanted—I am. <laughs> but what I wanted to say was, yeah. every time I'm with you, and I've never shared this with you, yeah, I always hug you, and I hug you partially because I'm really glad to see you. Likewise. And partially because I know you're still not over that, and I feel like you're still not over that. And, oh. Thanks. And I just wanted to let you know that I just always feel for you because I always remember those times and they really, really affected me. Oh, they did. Oh, wow. Well, yeah, they were they were heavy times, and we we hung out. We went out for some lunches, and we and and you know we talked about stuff like that. And it was a heavy time. It was a long time ago. Now it was 15 years ago. So. I, I actually could say I'm 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 through it, but there's always you know with anybody with any traumatic experience, there's always that re residual layer that's on people, you know. So maybe that's what you're feeling. Maybe I'm going to tell you something personally about me, and I'm not joking. Here we go. As a lot of people on this podcast know, I lost my first wife when she was 23. Yeah. Every person that I met in a relationship, I didn't want to go forward do anything because I was afraid they would die. Yeah, of course. And in my family, which I've never talked about. Good, let it out. My mom's married to a guy. He died when he was 30 of a heart attack. She married my father. She had me. He passed away when he was 37. So the lineage in the family was there was a woman who met two men or two relationships. They both died. And now I meet my person that I get married to. They die. Yeah. So in my mind, I'm thinking as unrealistic and stupid as it is, 
well, my mom lost two people. I can lose two people. And so I was afraid to meet somebody because I was afraid they were going to die. Not just for me. I was afraid for them, like yeah. some kind of curse or whatever, as crazy as it would okay. And I remember my mother telling me, she said, listen, stop it. Just stop it. You just can't do this to this person. You can't do this to yourself. Give love a chance. What's the worst that could happen? She dies. You could talk to her right now, and she would be understanding of that and okay. Yeah. It's like, just go for it, because so many people, as you alluded to, what's that old expression? Better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. So she said, exactly. just go for it. So you get divorced. So God forbid she dies. Experience love. Go for it. And because you never know when it's going to come around again. So when I see you, I think to myself, even when I see you with a wonderful, incredible women, I think to myself, is it still in the back of his mind when he's around this person? Does this person who's around him, do they love him? Do they want something more with him? And is he the kind of guy, because of what happened 15 years ago, is he the kind of guy that's sort of saying, you know what, let's just stay over there and let's just... <laughs> Let's just have it this way. No, no, I agree with you. I think I think if the tumblers fall into place, you 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 know, I'm not afraid to do it all again. You're not. No, not at I, I I'm like you. I, I believe in it, man. Life is short, and you know, if 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 things fall into place, you know, every experience is different. People die, love dies, but you you your job in life is to keep rolling, man. You got to keep rolling down the hill because if you don't mind i think about you and i think to myself you're just one of the funniest most original guys out there nice guy always figured out a way to make a living and keep a style of life that honestly at times might have been above what you probably were earning at the time but you were always a guy i love this and it's my philosophy to get a house that maybe you shouldn't get right now never get a car me. that maybe you shouldn't get right not now. me not you? I never I never spent outside of my means. Anything I got, I knew I was able to handle. Mentally about knowing that you were going to be successful in handling yep. what you were right then. I was already, everything that I've acquired, I, I, I knew I was able to handle. I never went above my means. So you never, never set do. a goal for yourself like, okay, I'm going to do this, so I'm going to get this. No, I, I don't do things until I know I'm ready for them and able to handle them. So a house or a car or a chocolate bar or whatever, I, I don't I don't take something on until I know. So you took that Pepsi on knowing that you could handle it. I can handle it. Got dude. it. So when you got your house, which is like an estate on like a mountain. <laughs> oh, man. I love it. It's like on so many acres of land and it's all like a wall around. It's like a compound. <laughs> you To get to Harlan Williams' house, okay, you know when you're at a house that's in a remote location when there is a single lane road to his house where you have to wait for people to pass you. You're making it sound like side Little of House a hill. on the Prairie, guy. Hoss, blind another child. We need the ratings. Anyway, so what I'm saying is, is so when you got the house, you knew in your mind, hey, I know I'm going to make this amount of money for the next 15 years. No, you didn't. Yeah. No. Uh, well, okay. I'm, I'm telling you, I did. How do you know what you're gonna make? How do you know? Well, I already had. I already how many comedians that have a great career like you have, and all of a sudden the bottom falls out, and they're working at Ha Ha's Chuckle Hut, <laughs> making six bucks on a subway token. Well, first of all, I almost had the money to cover the whole thing when I bought it, anyways. 
so I wasn't worried about it. And and I knew, I just knew I had so many things lined up and, and you know, things in the chamber and, and signed deals that that I, I knew everything was okay. Got it. Okay. Yeah. This is what's interesting about you that I'm learning right now. Yeah. In comedy, you're a risk taker. Yeah. But in life... I'm a risk taker. No, you oh, say yeah. you only get things when you know you can get them. Well, when it comes to like the financial and you're monetary, you're not a risk taker thing. there, but you're a risk taker in your comedy. Yeah, I'm a I'm a risk taker in in anything and everything. But you just said that you don't do anything, and you're absolutely sure in the personal life that you can make it happen. You don't go outside your box, but in comedy, you go outside your box. Yeah, and in, in it's just about everything, I go outside my box. But uh, you know, I mean, I'll I'll buy uh, I'll buy stocks and take risks on them. I'll make investments and and take risks on them. You know, it's not like I I you know if I'm going to buy a a stock in Google, I I know where it's going to go. So I do I do take financial risk, but I'm I'm not going to take a stupid risk in terms of like buying a house. If I've only got $10,000 in the bank, I'm not going to buy a $4 million house. What planet am I on, guy? You want to hear the funny thing about me that you'll probably eviscerate me for? How dare you? Before you say it, no, how about, dare you? It's about me. How dare you to you? I did something that I think I've shared a few times. Oh, I was in no. New York and I promised myself I was going to get a house or a condo by the the time I was 30, I promised myself that and I was going to do it. And I was 29 and I was living on the Upper West Side in a studio apartment. And I was running this comedy club, the Boston Comedy Club, and it was a cash business. But everybody thought I was a millionaire, but I really had barely anything. Yeah, yeah. I saw this condo at Lincoln Towers on the Upper West Side on the 26th floor overlooking the city with a balcony. It went down to $119,000. And back then, you could buy a house with 10% down. Yeah. But I didn't have $11,900 in my account. I only had like about three or 4000 in my But everybody thought I was a millionaire because, again, perception at the time in the 80s or whatever it was. So I'm all depressed. How am I going to do this? What's going to happen? I'm looking through a magazine. I see an ad for the American Express card, platinum card. Comes with a $10,000 checkbook line of credit. Here I apply for the card. They give me the card and the checkbook. I walk down to the office. I write a check. I take another money out for $10,000, give another check for $1,900, and I bought my first apartment with an American Express card when Smart. I had nothing. Welcome to America. But Express. again, I did the opposite of what you do. I didn't have it. And I right. had to figure out how to come up with that money every month and make it happen. But I eventually did that and paid it off in 10 or 12 years as opposed to 30. So it worked right. out. So you took that risk. I, I always lived within my means. So. I think it's smart based on yeah. the stress I went through. But I, if I hadn't yeah. taken that risk, I never would have had that wonderful apartment. But here's the thing. You didn't need that apartment. You no. just wanted that apartment. That's correct. So you could have lived just as well in a one-bedroom apartment somewhere. So to me, that was a a risk that was unnecessary. You are correct. So, so, but, but, uh, I, but my, my thing is if I have, if I have acquired the income and then I see something that I want, then I, I proceed to, to, you know, move forward with that. 
Got it. All right. Now, what I'd like to do is go way, way back, if you Hey-o. don't mind. We're going way, way back yeah. to the very beginning. Tell me about your family. Tell me about where you grew up, the socioeconomic <laughs> dynamic. And tell me the first moment that happened where you said to yourself, I want to be in this business. Oh, man. Jeez, man. I don't even know if I remember. Uh, grew up in... Uh, in Canada, in the suburbs, uh, you know, good family, four sisters. And you? Three fathers, two mothers. <laughs> no, mom and dad. Uh, me, I was the middle brother. <laughs> two younger sisters, two older sisters, sandwiched in the middle. And probably, uh, I don't know, I, when I was a kid, I did I did a couple of plays at the school. Got some laughs from the crowd, but I think I think the first time I realized I wanted to do stand up was in high school, and I was always good at getting laughs from you know my fellow students, and that was that was cool. They thought it was funny, but then one night about fifteen of us went to a movie, we went to see one of Stranger Calls. Okay, and we're in a packed theater on a Saturday night. There wasn't a seat available. And it was this really scary horror movie. And I started out loud, like making comments during the movie. I would I would pick the perfect moment. And you know how you always get mad when someone talks in a theater? But for whatever reason, I was picking the exact perfect moments to throw my jokes in. And the whole theater, I don't know if there must have been 300 people in there. So 300 strangers in the dark, every joke I did, and I probably did about 10 of them throughout the movie, the whole theater erupted with laughter, like (laughs) blew up with laughter. And I was sitting there in the dark with all my friends, and that was the first time I'd ever got laughter from strangers that I didn't know. And I was literally commanding this dark room full of adults and kids. And it was such like a powerful feeling. I was like, wow. And I realized that maybe I've got the ability to to do this. And I think that's when the seed first happened, where I I kind of got the bug that I I really like the sound of making these people laugh and and uh, you know these this 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 bubbling sound of laughter coming out of the blackness and complete strangers and so. Uh, it slowly started creeping into my brain, and as I got older, I started to find out about stand-up comedy, and you can make a living at it. And so when a stranger calls is the reason I'm here with y'all right now. And again, it was improvisation. It was improv, man. Have you checked the children? <laughs> Remember? Of course. Man. You know what's so odd about what you said? You just jogged something in me where I, in my classroom, I did the exact same thing that you did, but in a class. Right. And I would wait for that moment in a serious class, and I would chat, and the cold class would laugh. And what was odd was the teacher never got upset about it. Yeah. And, of course, I was voted class clown, as you probably were. I, You know, I think I did it in the class, too, and a lot of guys do it in the class, and, and I'm not taking anything away from you being the class clown, but I think what got me over the hump, as I said, suddenly I was in a room full of people that didn't know me. Yeah. They didn't know I was a funny guy. 
Yeah. And they were laughing just bait. They couldn't even see what I looked like. And they were laughing just on the content, on the words, on the timing, on the inflection in my voice, on the way the way I'd strung things together. And and the fact that, you know, you get paying consumers who don't want to hear some jackass kid talking through a movie. They want to see the movie. And the fact that they all just went with me on that journey and they they loved it. <laughs> I mean, I ruined the scary movie probably, but it turned into something completely different and and uh it was just it was a real kind of uh revelation to me and and it was like this awe-inspiring moment so to this day i check the children every night before (laughs) i go to bed what was the next step when was the first time you went on stage in front of a a regular comedy club or similar crowd like that and what happened uh the next step was um after i got out of college I uh, I was in Toronto and I I went on like amateur night in in Toronto Canada. There was one club at the time. It was Yuck Yuck. It was the only club in Canada as I, as far as I know. Mark Breslin, the owner. Yeah, and and you had to call in on a on a rotary phone. You had to call in on Monday mornings at eleven o'clock, and they took the first fifteen callers. So and this was even before redial. <laughs> so, so if you if you you know I'd call and be like beep 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 be busy you'd have to hang up dial it all again like my finger was you know I was like I almost got crab claws from doing it's like oh my god this is number you know because you had like ninety guys calling in at eleven it's like trying to get through to a radio station and just be beep and you'd hang up and you'd do it all the n- nine numbers or whatever it is all over again or seven I don't know how many numbers are in a phone number I don't know these things I used to even and dial the brackets on the area code and that was hard to find but uh and and then finally like i you know after about five or six weeks all of a sudden it was like hello i'm like um is this yuck yucks yes um i'd, I'd like to do the amateur night please okay be here at eight o'clock thank you bye they took my name and boom and that was it that started my journey I, it was terrifying, and, and I was elated at the same time. Like, the minute I hung up, I was like, yes, I'm through. And then I was like, oh, my God, I got to go on stage and do stand-up in front of strangers tonight. Like, it was terrifying but exciting. Now, as you were calling, yeah, did you have five minutes prepared? Or yeah. You did. So I you, did. You had it prepared. You yeah. wrote it. Your own original stuff. Again, like you said, I don't do anything unless I'm sure. So a lot of people, they sign themselves up and they're like, oh, now I got to write something. Yeah. You'd written something. You were ready. I was ready. So you go there. There's about 10 or 15 open micers. Before you tell me about the experience, was there any of you that night that became a working comedian and somebody you know today still doing it or no? Uh, Yeah. There's a guy. There's a guy named uh, Greg Morton. Greg Morton, yes. Greg Morton. He, him and I, we started roughly around somewhere within the same three weeks, I would say. And Greg's a great guy, and he's still touring around the, the Canada and the United States. He's still doing it. So, um, yeah, it's amazing. Tell us about that night. You're getting ready to go on. You've prepared your five-minute set. Yeah. Get your spot. Normally, they give it to you randomly. What number were you doing? I was number one. Which is uh, terrifying. I just share this with you guys because he wouldn't know this at the time. But the first spot in any show, if you're doing a show where there's a lot of people, 
is normally the kiss of death. Yeah. Now, granted, when you go to a comedy club, there's the MC and his, you know, he's worked <laughs> hard and he's been a specialist. And there's two different kinds of shows that you see most. One with the MC, the middle, which is called the feature act, and then the headliner, which Harlan does. But occasionally you'll have the host, you'll have an opener, a feature, and then the headliner. Sure, and, uh, sure. and and that first slot, whether you're the host or the whatever, the opener, is the toughest spot. And so if you ever see anybody go on stage in that opening spot and get like a standing ovation or a great response, know that it's very rare and you better take note of that comedian's name because anybody who can go on that first spot and kill is somebody who you want to take note of because the crowd isn't warmed up, they don't want to laugh, and they're judging for that first person. And so how did it go for you? Uh, it was it was pretty wild. I was so excited to go out there. Um, when I saw the mic, it was in the mic stand, mm-hmm. and I, I just saw it and I fixated on it. I, I had so much energy, and I was so fired up. I just ran up and I grabbed the mic, and I just went, <laughs> like that. Like I just like screamed into it. And I, I guess I didn't realize the amplification and these these three girls sitting right in the front row just went like, that, like they freaked out. And then I was like, whoa. And I kind of realized I had this power in my hand. And uh, it was weird because a friend of mine had found in like a Salvation Army thrift shop, he had found, you know, that 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 um, robe that the Pope wears? Yes. It's like a giant poncho with a gold cross on it. Yes. It's embroidered. It's very elegant. A friend of mine had found one of those in a thrift shop and gave it to me. And so I wore it out on my first night. You wore a Pope robe on your first... I wore the Pope robe and underneath long johns. And I wore work boots with steel toes and a pair of shorts that I'd drawn checkerboards all over. And I walked out of my first line after I did the big screech. I just calmed everything down. I looked at the crowd and I was like, yeah, that's right. Just like every other kid on my street, I wanted to be Pope. (laughs) And that was my opening line. And uh, it got a laugh. And then I just kind of went from there. My next move was I, I, I... I said, but it didn't really work out for me. I became a gunslinger, and I threw the poncho over my shoulder the way Clint Eastwood used to, and I had a toy rifle sticking out of my belt line, and I pulled it out and started. I I, I don't even remember the rest, but that, that was my initial, my opening lines ever on a stand-up stage. There was a little run there where I, I got a wig. I got a, uh, a black, a, a woman's wig that came down to my thighs. Okay, uh-huh. I, I, my sister got me this wig for Christmas because it's what I wanted, and I took it home and I I washed it in a bucket of varnish. You wanted a wig for Christmas. I wanted a wig for my stand-up show, and I washed it in a bucket of varnish and I hung it upside down to dry. Why varnish? Because when it dried, I hung it upside down to dry. So when it dried, it stood straight up. Oh, so okay. then I would walk out on stage, and I had a four-foot high hairdo and it literally would hit there was a sprinkler in the roof at the comedy club my hair would get tangled on the sprinkler on your dad it got tangled on, on, on the clit yeah on the clit i mean i did all kinds of stuff man i used to walk out with bags of cement on my shoulder and just throw them on the stage and leave them there i'd i'd go out topless 
I'd go out with a Christmas tree in the middle of summer. I I just I I just experimented all over the place. I used to keep a phone in my back pocket, like the receiver of a phone in the middle of my act. I'd pretend to take a call and start talking to so people. So you never did the same set. I did. I, I worked on the same jokes, but I'd always mix in experimental stuff. I'd I'd go out in different voices. I mean, I remember one time I, I had a make a professional makeup artist before I went out. I had her put a, a knife slash across my whole face, and I and it looked so real. People, I walked out on stage with this, and I told people, I said, "Folks, don't be disarmed by this cut. I I just got jumped in an underground parking garage. I, I had an ice cream sandwich, and somebody wanted it, and they they jumped me for the ice cream sandwich." And so I did the whole set with this thing, and then right at the end of my last joke, I just took my finger and pushed it and it, it like all like and people were just like screaming because they thought it was i was pushing my real flesh i just i experimented with so many different things i, I loved it and when did you do your first set how long in did you do your first set where it was just all straight stand up not one prop not one thing just you and your mind oh, and your gosh. material how many years in i don't know man uh, because I, you know, I, 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 it, I couldn't tell you. I don't know the exact date. You That's know, okay. it just kind of. I'd probably dip in and out of it. There was probably shows where I did it and didn't do it, but probably within the two years, my first two years, that type of stuff started to happen. And what was the moment that happened where you said to yourself, "I'm never working"? Because I imagine you had a day job of some kind. What were you doing to make a living back then? I was working for the police. Doing what? I worked in the mailroom. It was bizarre. I, I had to infiltrate the whole police force from the commissioner's office down to the morgue. And I would one day I'd be handing stuff to the police commissioner and the next day I'd be down in the morgue looking at a dead body. It was it was it was a bizarre job. Wow. Yeah. It's incredible. So what was the moment that happened where you said to yourself, I'm never ever going to work a day job again? Um, the, the day that it happened, like what happened where you just said, you know, I'm quitting everything. All I'm, right. Similar to the house story where you said, Hey, I don't do anything. This until is a I good know. story. So when did you know? Well, I knew, I knew from the beginning, I wasn't going to do a day job forever, but I knew there would come a time when I'd have to quit working for the police. So here's how I ended up quitting with the police. Um, because I drove for them and I worked for them, they gave me a police-issued shirt in 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 um, in Ontario, Toronto, where I worked. It was like a light blue shirt that the Ontario Provincial Police were issued. So I had to wear that as part of my uniform at work. And I had a buddy who did silk screening. And you know that famous picture of Jack Nicholson smashing through the bathroom door in The Shining and he yes. sticks his here's Johnny. So I had my buddy one day silk screen that picture on the back of my police shirt. And the next day I went down to police headquarters and delivered some mail to the police commissioner. And when I got back to my office, my boss said, you know, I'm about to be fired. And I go, why? He goes, because you wore that, you, you put Jack Nicholson from The Shining on the back of your police shirt and walked into the police commissioner's office. And I said, I'll tell you what. I said, dude, I've been working on my stand-up at night. 
It's getting real good. I'm at the point where I'm going to be able to make a living at it. I said, let me finish out my two months and I'm done. I said, I'll walk away from the job. You don't have to fire me. He goes, okay, done. And he was a great guy. He was a, he was a wonderful guy. Walt Jurgen was his name and a big German guy with a big, like bratwurst mustache and a, a Mac one, you know, muscle car. And, uh, and so, uh, he let me finish out my two months and I took my, here's Johnny police t-shirt and walked out the door and went into stand up full time. When did you know you could write children's books? Uh, I, I didn't really know. I just sat down and did it one day. I just, I just started writing. But what's odd, Harland, is that normally people who write children's books are people who have children. Yeah, yeah. I have children. My brain is like a kid's brain. So my my, my child was my brain, my imagination. And I, I, I thought, I, I love the wacky world that I'm always seeing in my head. And I just, I wanted to write. I wanted to get kind of my visions out. And I'm also an illustrator, so I could visualize my thoughts as drawings. And so and I would, you always were a great illustrator from a kid, from a little boy you were drawing. Yeah, I, I don't know if I'm great, but I always, I've always drawn. No, you are great. I remember I used to take your books to my kids when they were little. Oh, thanks. And read them to them. Awesome. Yeah. You a few other questions about your career. Because you, you are a really great actor, and I love watching you act. You have a style about you that certain directors and casting directors might not necessarily shine to because you give everything to your performance. You know, one of the things, if you're out there and you're listening and you are in this profession, one of the hardest things you have to decide what you're going to do is what lane you're going to take. And I'll give you an example. And Harlan has always been the guy who, although he doesn't necessarily probably want to always be that guy, he's always been the guy that you want to come into a scene or you want to come into a movie and just walk into the scene, just fuck people up and then leave. And so in Half-Baked, when you're creating a movie or you're doing something, and I relate it to Seinfeld as well, Jerry were here, he'd probably say the same thing if he had the fabulous true serum in his veins. When most people watch Seinfeld, they think he's probably the fourth funniest person in the show. That doesn't mean he's not funny. That means that the show is written to where he's the grounding point and there's craziness all around him. Right. In yeah. Half-Baked... Chappelle, even though he was selling weed, he was the voice of reason and the grounding point, and yeah. everybody around him was craziness. Yeah, sure. And so, but when people decide to take that lane of the person who comes in and just always kills it, a lot of times they have a hard time getting the lead role in something because the lead role, you don't always want the crazy guy. It doesn't, it only works a select few times, and you can count on half a hand where the lead role in a television series who's crazy has worked. Like, you know, Martin Lawrence and his show was one of them. In film, Ace Ventura is one where the lead character, crazy. But it's normally the lead character is the guy you have to rally around. Like in something about Mary, Ben Stiller, who's the grounding point of sure. what it is. Yeah. In the movie Friday, Ice Cube grounding point. Yeah. And everything around him is crazy. So when you're doing your character and you've decided to do that, is it harder for you to think to yourself, hey, how do I get to be the lead in something? They're not hiring people who do these crazy characters as the lead. They're hiring more people who are grounded. No, I, I don't think about that. I just think that, you know, I've, I've been fortunate where I've had uh, a number of movies where I've been the lead, which, which, is, which has been 
amazing. And then when I get offered a, a role that isn't the lead, I, I, I take it all on the same level. I go, I am blessed to be in this. I am blessed to be part of it. I am blessed to be doing it. And I'm going to give it everything I got, whether I have six lines or whether I'm the lead. And I've been very blessed in... And where I've, I think I've had four or five movies where I've been the lead and other ones where I've been a major co-star and other ones where I've had a cameo. And it's, it's all just, it, it's so fun and, and invigorating. And I, I just, I just love it. Tell me a movie role that you did where you would, if you had to pick one of them and put it in a time capsule and have somebody open it up 50 years from now that you would be say to yourself, that's what I want to be remembered for. Probably Rocket Man. That's a movie I did for Disney where I was the lead, and and Disney gave me the uh, the the leeway to rewrite the script. They actually let me sit down on my computer and rewrite what was already there—a strong script—and I got to go in and rework it. And so that be, because it's a feature-length movie, I got to put my comedic stamp on it all the way through it from beginning to end as opposed to just scenes and moments so so even though it's it's more of a family friendly movie it's not quite as edgy as dumb and dumber or or half baked i feel like it's a very accessible movie and it it really kind of it demonstrates a lot of my physical and 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 um you know wordy comedy and all of it's encapsulated in that movie at some point now a lot of wonderful things have happened in your career a lot of amazing things tell me something if there's one thing that you haven't done yet seriously that you just it's on your bucket list in terms of your career and you want to do it but it hasn't happened yet it's been elusive what is it I think what would be really cool, something that I'd, I think I'd be really good at is, is getting behind the camera and directing like a, a comedy or any type of film. But I, th I think a comedy is, is something that I, I would really love. I love being behind the camera and, and working with actors and kind of shaping their performances and seeing how much they'll let me in and let me guide them or make suggestions and... And uh, so that's something I'm working on now. And hopefully uh, within the next year or two, I can be behind the camera and, and direct a film because, you know, I've acted in so many of them and I love it. And, uh, you know, hopefully I'll do some more. Uh, but d directing would be a new challenge for me and, and very uh, artistic for me and uh, something I feel I'm very capable of. Awesome. Six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name. Something you tell me what comes to your mind could be a story, could be anything, yeah. whatever. The Farrelly Brothers. Ah, uh, Farrelly Brothers. Just uh, you know, I gotta credit those guys for kicking the door open for me. They 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 put me in my first movie, Dumb and Dumber. Um, they've been super great to me. I, I love those guys. So just nothing but love, almost like. Uh, I don't know if I say family, but just there's a little place in my heart with them because they believed in me. They they kicked open the door for me. So and plus they're funny as hell and their movies are great. So Dave Chappelle, Dave Chappelle. Uh, I've always found Dave to be. It's weird because I know Dave and I've worked with Dave, but I've always found Dave to be 
a little bit of a mystery. I find Dave hard. It's hard for me to really like get in behind the wall with Dave. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But so I, I like my connection with Dave, but it's, it, there's, there's a little ambiguity in it and, and it, uh, it makes it kind of neat. And I'm not tight with Dave. Like I call him every day, but I've worked with Dave. We did half baked and, I don't know. There's a bit of a shroud over Dave with me. You know, I, I don't know what it is. I'd love to one day spend time with him and just totally get him behind and connect. Well, this is what you do know, though, is that he wrote a movie with Neil Brennan. He was yeah. very involved in everything. Yeah. Very involved in every decision. So one thing, wherever the shroud is, one thing you should know, he chose you. I know and he, he did. he fought for you. He did. I, I know that. And, I, and that's the thing that in the mystery of it, it's like regardless of what the relationship and you don't know, and, it's a, and it always is a mystery. Yeah. It's a great feeling that every time you do see him, you know, hey, he chose me out of a lot of people. He did. And I, I love Dave for that. And, and this mystery isn't bad. It's just no, it's I've never had the opportunity to get in behind and get super close to Dave. And usually guys I work with, I get a little closer, but he was so busy on the set of that movie. And, and you know, to Dave's credit, I, I passed on Half-Baked, I think, about five times. And Dave just kept coming coming at me, and the producers kept coming at the me. The power and, of no. Yeah, and, and it wasn't because I, I was just a little concerned about doing a movie based around drugs, because that's not my world. And so I was a little... I remember many conversations with yeah. you about it. Yeah, but but then I thought, you know what, I'm an actor. And 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 it's like I got to just let that go and go. I'm a guy acting like I'm into drugs and I can't I can't be responsible for the whole consciousness of the world. I mean, I did a movie as a serial killer and uh, something about Mary and I'm not a serial killer. So I just it took me a while to get to that place to accept it. It's an acting role. And and so I, I just let everything go and I did and I thank God I did and and Dave if you ever see this thank you for for sticking with me and putting me in the movie I I hope I complimented the movie and I sure had an amazing time doing it man yeah I loved it Canadian comedy versus American comedy Canadian well when I started I don't really know how it is now that much because I'm I'm not up here it's been twenty five years but. When I was coming up through the ranks, there was definitely a difference. I think Canadian comedy was a little more subtle. It wasn't so over the head. It was a little more cerebral, maybe. Whereas I find a lot of American comedy is just like, boom, 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 right in your face. Like, here's the premise. Here's the punchline. And, and Canada had a little more of that British sensibility where it was kind of more meandering and kind of you'd, you'd laugh 15 seconds after you heard the punchline. Whereas in America, I think if you, you you want the punchline like immediately, but that was then. Now I I don't know as much because I'm not up here in the Canadian scene so much. Dane Cook, Dane Cook's my buddy. I mean, I love Dane. I I was, you know, I got really upset when people started dumping on Dane, and Dane was a guy that I watched at the Laugh Factory in Hollywood. He came in and would work the midnight shift, and that's where they kind of put the guys that, well, maybe have some potential. And Dane worked it and worked it, and he just got better, and then they put him on the regular nights. And I watched Dane just grow and become really great. And and when his success hit, I was like, man, he deserves every inch of it. 
And when people started dumping on him, because I think people got jealous because he, he was doing so great, I was like, this isn't fair, man. He, he, he's earned every ounce of this, man. And so I, I love Dane. He's a buddy, and uh, he's, um, he's done great, and, and uh, I love what he does. Awesome. Jim yeah. Carrey. Jim, oh my God, he's like, because he's Canadian, he's he's an inspiration. He's, he, you know, the thing about Jim is he offers ingenuity. He 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 he'll take comedy and then go, okay, outside of comedy that exists, what's new? What can I create? And he he creates new levels of comedy, which a lot of comedians will get on the comedy train and go, I see where the comedy train goes and works, and they they ride it. And they have a career, and they, they go from A to B on the comedy train, but but Jim jumped off and laid new tracks. And uh, he's been an inspiration. And that's what I try to do with, with what I do. I always try to I try to forge new comedy ground and uh it's uh it's it's uh, Jim's amazing. Number one, top. Awesome. Last three questions. Your proudest moment in show business. My proudest moment, I guess it's a two-tiered answer. The proudest moment is just that first night I got on stage and did it. You know, I got over the fear, I got over the hump and I said I'm I'm going to do this. Whether I sink or swim, that made me really proud because that was the most terrifying moment of all that was jumping off the cliff but once I jumped off the cliff I said if I can get on the David Letterman show that's it I'm I'm there I, anything after Letterman is gravy and if nothing happens after Letterman I don't care and so I jumped in 10 years later I got on Letterman and and I'm still elated from that moment i still remember it i'm still i still uh you know that was my moment and then all this other stuff happened after it so i feel like i'm just a guy such saturated in gravy tell the audience why you went out on the david letterman show with peanut butter on the tops of your (laughs) shoes i went on the letterman show and uh uh, it was an intense moment. It was a, a pinnacle moment for me. The king. Yeah, it was the king. And like I said, that was my objective when I got into stand-up. That's, that, was my, that was my bullseye. And I thought, I don't want to be in this intense moment and having it be intense and pressure-filled, but yet it's comedy. And I thought, I've got to figure out a way to, to counterbalance that and so I thought I need to be silly. I need to I need to feel silly walking out there because silly equals funny to me. And and also when I was in college, I had a vision uh, before I'd even done stand up. I told my buddies in college, I said, guys, I don't know how, but I'm going to be on Letterman one day. And they're like, what are you talking about? I said, I don't know. I just feel it in here. I can feel it. And I said, and when I do it, I'm going to put peanut butter on my shoes. And they're like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so 10 years later, here I am. I, I do Letterman. Before I go on, I cover my boots in peanut butter. I go out. I felt silly inside. I had a killer set. 
all my friends watched it and they phoned me, the guys from college, they go, man, we remember 10 years ago when you said you're going to do Letterman and put peanut butter on your shoes and you did it. And because he called you over to the cat, he to the called chair. me over and t- talked about it. And, and yeah, the, he, Dave loved it and <laughs> it was, it worked for me. It made me feel silly. <laughs> and I feel like I, I feel like I had a really solid set and I, I couldn't have asked for it to go any better. So it was a wonderful set. I'll never forget it. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to take things to the next level my biggest disappointment god you know it's hard for a guy like me to to find a disappointment because like i said i've i've boy i've been really lucky and blessed and and uh, you know i i i don't know that i can honestly point to a disappointment you, you know, know what, was there any kind of tv show that you were testing for that you loved that went on for like five years and you're like i was right there and i i didn't get it or a movie role that you went out for and you were so close and you didn't get it and then the movie did really well and then you fueled it to be no um, because it's it's like you said at the beginning of the show karma you know right. and i i believe in karma and i'm i've made it my philosophy to be happy with what you have. Don't don't worry about what you don't have. And and I've been I've been blessed with so much that I I it would be a disservice to myself to think about things that I don't have because like I said Letterman was all I wanted. I got it and then you know I've gone on to do, you know, three sitcoms and 40 movies and specials and you know it, it it's 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 way beyond there, there's no there's no area for being disappointed and there's things that I, I that have missed and and i haven't gotten but that's okay i wasn't meant to you know so i i just put it right there last question as a that's uh, what she said <laughs> i'm gonna do it twofold because you're also a very great producer you produced a lot of content a lot of specials a lot of different uh, pilots of your own that you've done so what advice do you have for the young artist who's just starting out, who has that dream, who has those goals, who wants to do great things or in any business or whatever it is, but specifically focusing on ours? And what does it take for that person in your field to get to the next level, to get to the kind of place, to have the kind of career that you've had? Well, there's there's different variables for everyone, but I always say, you know, try and try and create your own world you know what i mean like like it's like i said earlier about the comedy train like everyone knows how to get on the comedy train and construct a joke and elicit a laugh but that's very surfacy it's i i would recommend people dig deeper and find something special within yourself how, how is your show how is what you're offering special and don't just conform to kind of the generic route. Like try and try and offer, like if you look at Andy Kaufman or you look at a performer like Prince or an actor like Jack Nicholson or these are people that, that really found what their specialness was and offered it to the world. And if you look, they, they stand out. Whereas there's a million actors, there's a million singers, there's a million comedians, but... If you can find that special place within you, it'll it'll burn brighter and longer than just riding the train to success. And hey, I sold out the 
you know, the Boston arena or whatever, I think you want to look beyond, beyond just making money and, and having a career. You want, you want to, you want to find something special to leave behind. So that's what I would recommend for, for, you know, young people to dig a little deeper and search for that. Cause that'll, that'll carry you not only through your career, but beyond your career. You know, people are going to remember, whether you like them or not, what Jerry Lewis did versus what kind of a more standard comedian did who was just as famous during Jerry Lewis's day. But those comics probably won't be remembered, but Jerry Lewis will because he offered that special thing, you know? Absolutely. That's amazing. And he offered that special thing and he wrote and he created, yeah. and he produced, yeah. and he made sure that his vision got out there, just like you did. Harlan Williams, let me tell you something. Nice guys do not finish last. That's right. Be nice. You are an Be example nice. of that. Thank you so much for doing this. You are really, truly, as I said before, an extraordinary man, and I'm so grateful to know you and to have you as my friend. That ditto. Can I end it with a power sock? Please do. This is going to be a long one. Okay. You want to count down? 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Fantastic. Oh, God bless. As always, this is another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley A fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.